Welcome to Raised On It. You guys are in for a treat this week. Uh, this week's episode, I talked with author Jake Brown. He's written over 50 books, which is crazy in the first place, but he's written 50 books across the entire music spectrum, from rock and roll to hip-hop to country music. And his latest one that he's talking about on this episode is Behind the Boards Nashville, which he explores the behind-the-scenes relationships between country artists and their producers. So in this book, he reveals stories of how some of the biggest songs from artists like George Strait, Carrie Underwood, Jason Aldean, Martina McBride, and everyone else you can think of, how those songs came to be, and exploring those relationships between artists and producer. So for the book, he interviewed 30 producers and included some big names like Paul Worley, right? He worked with the Dixie Chicks and discovered Lady A. Buddy Cannon is Kenny Chesney's longtime producer. Tony Brown, he's George Strait's longtime producer. And he interviews all of those guys, including some newer guys like Shane McAnally, who's just absolutely crushing it right now. The book is 600 pages long, so if you're not a reader, I know there might be some hesitancy, but there's so many great stories in here to unpack that I really encourage you to check them out. Uh, before you get the book, if you want to like a little teaser of what it's like, go to YouTube, type in Jake Brown Books. That's what I did, and you'll find his channel with, i say, about 40 or 50 different two- to three-minute clips of his interviews with these producers and the stories they tell about how a song came to be. It's really, really neat. Really encourage you that. In this episode, Jake talks about his background, how he became a writer and got this idea going, and why he wanted to write a book about the hit producers of Nashville. And of course, he tells a few stories behind the scenes, so that's really cool. Uh, it's a fun episode. But quickly, before we get to that, I do want to mention we have two other podcasts, Video Vaults, all about music videos. This week, we talked about Phil Vassar's Just Another Day in Paradise. That is out, Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you listen to podcasts. And the other one, The Album Collection, where we take a deep dive into country music albums. Next week, we have a new episode coming out, and we're taking a deep dive into one of Lone Star's albums, one of my favorite artists from the 90s, early 2000s. Also, if you're on Spotify, check out our account. We have a bunch of different playlists going. Most recently, we created three new playlists featuring the number two songs from the 90s, 2000s, and 2010s. So if you have like an hour or two drive or you're just working around the house, hit play on those playlists. It's a fun one to listen to. And as always, check out our website, raisonablog.com. We're on all the socials, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like this podcast, hit the subscribe button, leave us a review. We have some great episodes coming up with other artists and songwriters. So here is my interview with Jake Brown. I am joined by Jake Brown, the author of Behind the Boards Nashville, the studio stories behind country music's greatest hits. So, Jake, before we get into the book and country music and all the great stories about it, because we are called Raised On It, I am curious, you know, where did you grow up? What was life like growing up? And, you know, what led to these um, interests in music and writing? Well, that's uh, an interesting question. Basically, it started from a very, very holistic place in the sense that I grew up in the 80s. So I grew up when you were not only getting your input from MTV, constantly playing music, you were getting it from Casey's Top 40, you were getting it from whatever your local radio was, you were getting it from record tape and CD. And there was a little uh, record shop called Vintage Vinyl in St. Louis where I grew up 
my mom was a, a master's uh, art student at Washington University, and we literally lived across the street from that campus. So I go ride my bike over there every day is what I'm getting to. And I would take home cutouts from like everything that they would throw out. So I'd come home free 10, 15 records in afternoons sometimes. And then I would just, and not all of them were ones I grew up to be huge fans of, but it exposed me to a huge palette. I'm also an instrumentalist of seven instruments by ear. I started out on piano, then guitar, drums, etc., And I'm a, a producer in my own right here in town. Nothing on the level of the guys I interviewed in the book. <laughs> but, I, but, but I think that helped because um, I grew up making like four track recordings and, and like, you know, really pre-digital and the analog age and bouncing three down to four and you have another three for more instruments and just really uh, uh, working as a record, you know, executive at a young age, uh, 23, right out of college at record labels and on and on. So I kind of have a background that helps me translate this stuff, I guess is why I'm giving you that. In terms of um, whether I'm talking about country music production or there's two earlier volumes of Behind the Boards, a couple rock production. Uh, I can ask these producers and speak their language a little more. We can get a little nerdy but the one consistent theme has been trying to really tell the full stories behind all of these people. What first put them in, you know, sort of a headspace where they were looking at the producer name, like George Martin instead of the Beatles or whatever, and how they, or the, a lot of them were banned and they were like the nerdy guy in the band that knew all the technical <laughs> stuff. And they wound up recording the PA show, you know, the off the, off the PA, like the off the board, they'd record the shows and it led into production. So with country music, um, just to give you an example, uh, about, 65 to 70 percent of these people literally came to town to do something else and wound up producers and and i've been here 19 years almost this place helps you find and and, and find your path a lot of them like for example luke bryan's producers jeff stevens came to town he was a star he was a singer he wound up becoming a songwriter and then a producer by accident dan huff you've heard play on everything played on oh, name it you know uh uh tony brown was elvis presley's keyboard player you know what i mean norbert putnam that produced margaritaville was uh, elvis's last bass player so or one of them so you get these incredible backstories and i can touch throughout the book on that but um throughout my whole career i have tried to sort of reflect the back end of it without it just being a fluff thing i really want the reader to feel like they go in the studio in the songwriting room for like my national songwriter series and really feel like they're there as the songs being written or being recorded and they get to know their country stars they get to know if tim mcgraw you know takes 30 takes a song or is shy about singing <laughs> with people in the room or gets irritated with some presence of some recording thing or gets impatient and you find out these guys are really hard workers man the stars are hard workers the producers and these session bands will knock out three songs in an afternoon it's just an incredible business nashville's uh record record making it's unlike anything else in the world and you know music so when you you know one day you decided to say hey i'm gonna tell these stories i'm gonna go out and you know write these books and yeah. you've written 50 books since so you know what was kind of your realization that hey this is what i want to do and <laughs> i'm good at it this is a passion and i can tell these stories um I don't know that I would say I'm good at it. I always wrote, I, I play, I play by ear and I kind of write by ear and it's just always what I've done. I used to write my buddy's love letters for him and like papers for friends of mine in high school, <laughs> prayed for like 420 and stuff like that, you know, so little things, but the point being, I, it always was something I did. And I, I got out of school, moved to LA uh, with my guitar my drum set and my futon and cat. I wound up working at a record label called Cleopatra records. Um, and then very, very briefly for Geffen before I quit and started my own, um, moved back to New York, Big Daddy Music gave me a distribution deal, now MVD. But the point is I learned the business from a kind of really organic place behind the scenes and dealing with all these different people. And I actually had no ambition to write books. 
Suge Knight was getting out of prison and no one had written. I thought, you know, this literary agent that make me a bet that I couldn't write a book. And I, and I said, well, I want to write a book on Suge Knight because I feel like Suge Knight's story. And I, I'm inextricably linked to that book because I'm the only, thankfully, biographer who's written one on him. So even like the Death Row Chronicles and BET did in 18, I was the biographer of record for that whole six part series. And you'd hear wow. me and then him talk, him from prison. It was like, whoa, it was super surreal. But that book had a real notoriety and it was my first book and it like kind of kicked off a writing career I had not planned. I was happy just producing records. So my point is like, um, I been, I just kind of kind of took off from there. A guy named Tony Rose gave me a book deal. Uh, after that, I did a book on R. Kelly that was really critical of him and called him like a sexual predator and everything. And they didn't release it for a year because they insisted that I do edits to make it like less. Because back then he wasn't. Oh, it I wasn't, suppose. You know what I mean? Yeah, it wasn't like it is now. So, I mean, it should have been. But so I wrote this like fluffy intro to kind of like pad what he did. But if you read that book now, and that book has been licensed by Doubleday, and it's, it's been out there. It's been in the prison library system for a lot of years. A lot of my rap books went in. So I get letters like in the early years of writing from like death row inmates that were like, I'm innocent. And I read your Suge Knight book in my prison library. And you know, like, can you write a book with me about my case? And I mean, you don't get tons of those, but you, it's just been a weird, it's led me down a really you know, crazy path. And, yeah. and the other thing that I found that I was very fortunate with, if you want me to just go into it in a minute, is that I write a bunch of different series that special, I write memoirs, but like the Joe Satriani, uh, Strange Beautiful Music, but I also do, and Big Smo, uh, My Life in a Jar, which is out last year. I have Teddy Riley's coming up. But right in the middle of that, I do anthologies because my rationale is for a reader, it's probably as interesting to read 20 stories within the same book as one. And I really go so in-depthly with these guys that, you know, like, like in this book, man, uh, Byron Gallimore, uh, Tim McGraw's chapter, 45 pages. Michael Knox, Jason Aldean's chap, uh, Tony Brown's 45 pages. Some of these are, I gave these guys my word that as I ever do everybody that, um, excuse me, if you are going to, if you're going to give me the access I want, I'm going to give you as many pages as it takes to tell that story. Um, so you, you hear these amazing backstories that, that were not exactly like mine, but I crossed paths with some of these people and other lives and sort of other record lives when I was doing other kinds of projects and then, or I would hear about them and, or I was a big fan of theirs or whatever it was. But I've been lucky that some of these series, no one else was doing. I mean, maybe they were doing, like there was a behind the glass, to be fair, mm. going behind the boards was my, my uh, altered version of that. But like in the studio, I own a trademark series called In the Studio. And I wrote books with Hart, Motorhead, Lemmy from Motorhead, Tupac Shakur State. Uh, I wrote one on Rick Rubin, Tori Amos. They, it goes up ACDC, Iron Maiden, Dr. Dre. They go all over the map. And no one had that handle. And I was like, there's no way there's not a book called <laughs> In the Studio. So that that's one. Um, Nashville Songwriter. I was like, there can't be just not a book already called Nashville Songwriter. There wasn't mine. Uh, and that's got three volumes, counting the one coming out next year and a hundred writers. So I've been blessed with, with that uh, luck. Um, same with behind the boards. And, and once you get hold of a conceptual handle and you can kind of attach a bunch of really cool producers to it or really cool songwriters. Uh, I have another one called Beyond the Beach, which is rock drummers that had like Tommy Lee, Lars Ulrich from Metallica, Aerosmith's drummer, Bon Jovi. But once word starts spreading, I found that it, there's usually people that are like, oh, I want to do one of those. And like, <laughs> they just, cause they're used to someone asking them like, you know, fluff stuff that 30 second 
minute clipped answers or they're in a right. book with five other guys it's a memoir they don't want to hear about how they came up with the beat for walk this way but we want to so joey kramer talked i mean these these were guys that had doug cosmo clifford from credence i was sitting there like dude because i'm a drummer so it's like oh when you did that triplet <laughs> on the back end of a turnaround of blah 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 and and so that's what i mean i'm nowhere near their proficiency level so i don't want to compare it from a performance side but i understand and it gives me a little bit more access because they're like oh wow you want to know how a rudiment reversed for the blah 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 work to come to and tommy leaving he hates talking about how he came up with drum parts but i pulled a couple out of him uh we talked a long time but he was like you know john bonham's in my opinion modern equivalent so I think also, you know, these guys have egos. I mean, I think the fact that, you know, but there's a way to, there's a way to talk to people that can let them know you respect them without also in their hand kissing their ass. And I think the reason a lot of people say no to this stuff is because they get these really like salaciously sounding like we, you know, we want to do a tell all, but they don't want to tell all. They might want to tell you about the music though, you know? Uh, right. Billy, Billy Corgan uh, gave me a, a really broad ranging interview for Tape Op magazine when I was writing for them. We covered the whole catalog and the deal was, look, we'll just talk about music. I have no interest in Courtney Love or any controversy. I, and that's been another thing for me I've been lucky with. Uh, I've only asked about the music. Um, sometimes that stuff weaves in if they want to, I did a book with Anna Nancy Wilson and Hart, and that was one of the conditions of the book was that I wrote the, I talked about that this morning on WGN. I, I was on their morning show and I was explaining that, uh, I, I surreptitiously kind of interviewed everyone else first because I wanted to have all my ammo. And that's just kind of advice for it ran randomly. If you have any listeners that are writers or that are PR, you know, anybody trying to get access in this aspect. Sure. Or ammo, you can come to the, like if you're a songwriter, come with ideas is a piece of advice we get a lot in that book series. In the same vein, I came with all the producers, all the ex-band members, people that hadn't spoken to each other in 25 years. And I sold them all on the idea that we could talk about the band and their legacy for the fans. And streaming was just starting. I was like, this is something someone could listen to without the headache of a tape or a CD sure. flipping over. And they could flip around to songs and then they could listen as they read. And so I've, anyway, it then uh, rather than their manager telling me, like yelling at me when they called back, because uh, I got Ann Wilson's email from the guitar player and I just went ahead and emailed her. I was like, let me just roll it at the dice. <laughs> and I thought the manager was going to be like, nope, that's it. We're going to sue you. Instead, she was like, well, let me get you interviews with Ann and Nancy, but let's do it properly and like not email Ann. And I was like, I'm sorry. You know, I was 15 years younger then. But yeah, uh, you got to find a way. Well, Tupac Shakur estate. Dina LaPolt was my lawyer and she was a Feeney Shakur's lawyer. And I just, you know, she turns down 95% of the stuff. We're one of the few books on Tupac that's actually been a, a, a authorized by the estate. And uh, I was shocked. I still have that framed in my other room, the, the Afini Shakur signed uh, authorization for that Tupac book. But that gave me the opportunity to interview Johnny Jay. And Johnny Jay is one of the most unsung heroes of West Coast rap production. He did all of the Tupac stuff. How do you want it? Um, you know, only, I mean, a ton of, a ton of amazing music. And he'd never talked to anybody. And he died. Uh, we were going to write a book, like I was going to fly out there and everything. And he hung himself in the LA County jail because he loved his family so much. And this is just my opinion. He got like locked up in there and couldn't get bailed out. And so like, that's an example of somebody that like, I'm, I'm honored in the first place, but like just that yeah. now I've been able with the doctors of rhythm audiobook series, we were able to take that audio and put it out. So the fact that sometimes 20 years later, 15 years later, the, the really other fun part of these books is how many of those kinds of guys and, and, and women I've been able to speak to, um, Bones Howe in the in the behind the boards. I don't know if you're a Tom Waits fan, but I am a huge '70s uh -huh. Asylum era Tom Waits fan. That's kind of an obscure reference, 
but that guy never had done interview. He gave me like a really long interview about the whole way they made those records. So that's now there for people who want to like discover that on audio, you know, programs like Spotify or whomever, they can like go and read this stuff now. So it's to answer your question in the very end of this part, it became a kind of a mission of mine after the fact they started, I started to get kind of catch on a little bit. I was like, you know, Maybe this is almost sort of a responsibility, not to sound nerdy, but now that I'm in my 40s. Sure. I've had, I've had kids that read my stuff for 20 years and I get like emails about, hey, I'm trying to be a writer now or whatever, it, or I see them at, at, at things or whatever. Like, it's always the same thing. Like the fact that 20 years later, there's still kids reading this stuff and the way that it's re, you know, distributed now with digital and with eBooks and all this stuff. So it's just really, it's cool, man. I'm happy to still be doing it. So you talk about, you know, you've, written about rock rap everything in between yeah (laughs) with with country music is there one thing that makes country music uh the industry the artists the producers the songwriters the whole gamut is there something that makes country music different that makes them stand out compared to the other genres tons of things um let me i'll try not to go on as long i was trying to give you a backstory so we covered that i loved it no this is great Uh, i don't don't want to talk so much but uh uh but i do of course uh anyway so the answer to that is kind of really in two or three examples so example number one would be you grew up watching music videos they don't really play them anymore on mtv but if you still see them you never saw you saw the artist name the album name the song name the label and maybe the director and country is the only genre you also see the songwriter and it demonstrates and illustrates, and I don't mean to plug my series again, but Nashville Songwriter, uh, it, it focuses on all the number one writers. It, it's, it's the first of its kind. It's got everybody. If you want to read about how the songs were written just as a fan or you want to become a songwriter and with the shows like Nashville and, you know, a lot of the popularity that, that now a song land. Shane McNally is in this book as an example. He's also yeah. a songwriter. Uh, but these guys take you and these women take you into how the core of that creative process works, how their personal stories also, this is point number two, there's a specialty in country music lyrics of reflecting the lives, the real day lives of like listeners in the lyric. So for example, Rodney Crowell or Byron Gallimore from this book, Tim McGraw's producer, he was a farmer till he was 30. He was a farmer. He would on the weekends play music in bars, but he, <laughs> but, but then when he came to town and he was producing a soundtrack to the rural, you know, sort of backdrop that country music fans listen from, um, off-roading and, and farming and all these things. She thinks my tractor's sexy, whatever kind of examples you want of titles. These guys grew up like that. Like Dallas Davidson, the Peach Pickers, Red Akins, Ben Hayslip are all in the book series. Um, and, and of course, Jeff Stevens produces Luke Bryan. Luke Bryan is like the Bruce Springsteen of country if you count like the last 20 years and sort of writing that soundtrack. So the, the lives of the listeners, these guys are real farmers. They are real people that grew up exactly how their fans did. And they speak what Dallas Davidson calls the language language in the sense that they can write that lyric from the little twists and turns and how people talk and you know boot scoot boogie is a song by brooks and dunn that's in behind the boards nashville it cracks me up because you hear that title the label tried to reject that title and they were like trust me man this is going to be a sensation and that became a huge you (laughs) know smash there's a lot of examples i can touch on but so the songwriter uh the producers are unique too because the producers a and r 
um, a tremendous amount of the material means that the George Strait's producer, Tony Brown, Michael Knox's producer, uh, uh, Jason Aldean's producers, Michael Knox, excuse me, and others, they listen to two and 3,000 songs to whittle down to the 15 or 16 that wind up on the record. For, for a George Strait or for a, a Tim McGraw or for a Kenny Chesney, Buddy Cannon talked about that. I mean, it's amazing. And, and then there's another thing, too, that's very, very importantly, um, the long-term uh, thread, if you will, that commonly wove throughout this book. And I'm going to give you some examples. Uh, Frank Rogers and uh, um, Brad Paisley, Miranda Lambert and Frank uh, Lydell, uh, Tony Brown and George Strait did 40 number ones in 20 years plus together. Um, <laughs> Luke Bryan and, and Jeff Stevens and Jody Stevens. Uh, there are others that will come to me. But these guys, uh, Kenny Chesney and Buddy Cannon, these are people by Ring Gallimore and, and Tim McGraw that were together from the, in, the infancy, from when they were unknowns. And they stayed together for 20, 25 years in some cases, 15, 20 years, uh, uh, a whole greatest hits in number ones. That's, you know, you see that in rock sometimes. It's like a Bob Rock and Motley did a few records or Mutt Lang and Def Leppard or ACDC and Mutt Lang. But it's really not as common. It's more common and more accepted for bands to jump around between a bunch of different producers over a catalog. Whereas in country, you find Dan Huff and Keith Urban. Uh, Thomas Rhett and Jesse Frazier. I'm just trying to, to plug some of these guys. Uh, Ray yeah. Baker and Mo Bandy, God, for that honky-tonk stuff from the 70s. We go that far back in the book. So you see this amazing kinship that develops in trust and kind of um, – uh, on both the artist side. Also, a lot of these guys, you know, grew into their own as producers and could have just said, hey, look, Clint Black's in the book. Clint Black started producing his own stuff, co-producing, and then took the reins over fully. So you also see the evolution of some of the stars that that become producers that, and co-producers in the case of like Kenny Chesney or uh, Tim McGraw or these other, you know, icons. Um, but it goes all over the map, man. Um, there's so many things that are unique about it. Music Row in and of itself, it's a bunch of houses. You know what right. I mean? Uh, for the most part, I mean, these condo bloodsuckers have been moving. Yeah. In. But other than that, I mean, Dave Cobb has taken over RCA and, and, and kept that amazing place. Like we were so honored to have Dave Cobb in the book. He's like the Rick Rubin of record production to me in country right now. And proudly, he told me when he took the interview that he had that book in his studio, which is pretty oh, awesome. neat. Yeah, man. And, and, and so anyway, my point is the, the, more the fact that I'm such a fan of these guys. Uh, and then there were some I, I didn't know because uh, I got to really discover a lot more about country. Like I would never really have listened to a Midland, but I knew who Shane McNally was and Josh Osborne's his co-producer. Those guys are it. Now, and then there's also another unique thing, the fourth point I wanted to touch on, track guys. So important. Track guys are a millennial advent. It's sort of a thing that came about where instead of the traditional session band, which these guys are still fast, they'll knock out three, three, hit, three four hits in an afternoon, whereas in rock, it might take months for that. Uh, but these guys like Krista Stefano, Luke Laird, Ross Copperman, Frank, uh, Joey Moy, Zach Krause, Sam, Hunt, Sam Hunt's producer, Ray Riddle, uh, there's others. These guys can play every instrument so authentically that a lot of times what you hear on the radio is the actual demo. Casey Musgraves producers, Luke hmm. uh, Laird and Shane McNally talked about this. That's crazy. That would never happen in another genre except probably hip hop, where the, the root beat is sometimes they want it raw and they don't want it polished. But it's amazing to me. And also the hybrid that's developed where country used to be really rigidly traditional. And then Mutt Langs kicked that door down with Shania a little bit in the 90s. And then like, you know, Big and Rich who are in the book, Paul Worley, my God, Paul Worley discovered. Yeah. That's another, the final point I'd make. There's a lot of record executives who are also producers. Now that's not as uncommon. You have your Jimmy Iovines and your, you know, Russell Simmons and your people like this, Jay 
disease and liar corn koans and so forth. There's a lot of examples. But in country, there's a uniqueness to the fact that a lot of your biggest stars were signed by these guys. They just wear so many hats. They're so talented. It was way overdue that they have a book about them. And rather than me be like the Nashville producers, I was like, why not? Because Behind the Boards was 10 years old. I was like, why not resurrect that series? And my dog died in 2018, little Hanny, my Cocker Spaniel, uh, my, yeah, makes me cry. And I, I was very depressed and needed to get out of it. And I decided to finally pull the trigger. So yeah, man, it's been a real ride because it, it was a, it's 600 page book, you know? <laughs> so. so you mentioned, you know, some of these artists are working with these, the same producers for 10, 15, 20, their whole career. You mentioned Maybe. it's the, it's like a, a mutual friendship and trust and respect are those the key components that, you know, make that, you know, relationship continue to progress? Because um, I know I was, you know, creeping around on YouTube and I know you have some, some of your video interviews out yeah. there yeah. with, uh, with these producers and there's trying to find like this balance between staying authentic to who the artist is, but still making them progress to, you know, to where the sound is going. So, you know, what's, what are those kind of qualities that keep that partnership together? Yeah, that's a great, great question, man. Uh, nobody's asked me actually that question. I've been doing this. is it's pretty cool. Huh. I can answer it for you with, with reference lack to the, those track guys I mentioned. Um, in the one hand, there's a trust level where a veteran producer like Dan Huff and a Jesse Frazier can team up on a Thomas Rhett and bring both schools to bear in a, in a, in the best of both worlds kind of scenario, rather than one trying to guess what the other would do, or they, they team up. So there's a camaraderie as, as competitive as it is. It's friendly. Nathan Chapman, Taylor Swiss producer, real honors in this book. He talked about, you know, working with Taylor for those first records and then Dan Huff taking over on red. And then he wound up with Keith Urban and they're like, ha you know, you stole my gig. I stole yours in a humorous <laughs> way. But, but that, so that's one, one end of that spectrum is, is the trust level that, um, wow, I'm going to trust this person to Carrie Underwood's going to trust Zach Crowler, Krista Stefano to handle, you know, a bunch of instruments and they, and rather than a really A-list session, man, conversely on the other end of the spectrum, you have the longer term when you mentioned respect and you mentioned sort of, uh, you know, helping steer the trends. A lot of these guys were smart and they said, as these stars got bigger and kind of like nudged a little and said, Hey man, make room at that console. I'm going to be pulling up a chair. You know what I mean? I'm going to yeah. be, I'm going to be co-producing with you from now on. That can, oh, sure. I've interviewed, I don't know, probably a thousand producers in the last 20 years. And I can, across every genre, I can tell you train wreck stories that I, that some, I couldn't, that uh, John Mellencamp told me that Jack and Diane probably had a thousand pieces of edit, of edit tape on it because back then it was two inch and you could literally put together cuts in the tape to it's it, that's kind of stuff's in the book too. Uh, wow. It was a Frankenstein song before they got it done, you know? So and, and my point is relative to this book, there are stories like that, but also these producers knew when to let the artist grow as a producer too. Because like a vision that Kenny Chesney had, Buddy Cannon said, shoot, I was ready. Just like, where do I sign up? And where do you want to go this record? You know, like, <laughs> you know, kind of, what do you want to do now? And, you know, same with like a Tim McGraw, same. Now you have other examples like Clint Black or James Stroud, who I should also really mention in this book, um, got Clint Black started as a co-producers. At some point, he was like ready to hop out off the pony and onto the horse and sort of, you know, like take off on his own. And and they're kind of just proud of it. Like it wasn't me. Like you're fired. It was like cool, man. Go on. You know, I, you know, uh, Brad Paisley made that kind of uh, step 
with the, uh, uh, Frank Rogers. And that's, if anything, to me, a testament to those producers and everything they did to help those artists grow into record men or into A&R people. That is an example. Taylor Swift is unique because she wrote the majority or co-wrote the majority of her own songs as Clint Black did. Those two uh, had a bigger hand in A&R than say you might've had another writer or like a Luke Bryan who probably appreciates from what I, the input I got or if uh, George Strait that there are Irv Woolsey's like his manager and Tony Brown's to sit there and listen to 2000 songs and bring him <laughs> the nuts. best hundred. Yeah. Like bring him the best hundred, bring him the best 50. And that's a, you know, when you talked about trust, that's what made me think of that example because what that's an, that's a perfect example of the amount of trust that these stars place in these producers to say, look, man, I trust your judgment so much in my career. I'm going to let you pick what you think out of thousands of options or the best 20 or 30 number, you know, choices, you know, it's, it's crazy, crazy. Yeah. Uh, one of the producers uh, that you interviewed, uh, Michael Knox, uh, oh, yeah. he, had a, he had a quote. Oh, so good. He, he had a quote um, in like the little YouTube clip. I found that something along the lines of, you know, when they're getting pitched, uh, you know, songs have been written, demo tapes, he says something like, that's great, but as producers, we're also our own brand and our own sound, and they got to know the artist and all of that. And, you know, so can you speak to that where these producers, yeah. you know, I look at someone like Shane McAnally right now where he's on Songland, and they're kind of, I don't want to use the word ego, but it's they, you know, they're responsible for their own career at the same time. Well, okay, so I mean, if I understand your, your question correctly, because I need to reference the clip with Frank, um, but what I think you're talking about relative to, to this process is that um, in the, okay, so as an example, uh, there was, there was uh, Josh Leo talked about producing Alabama. I want to try to touch on all these guys just when I mentioned yeah. Uh, Ray Baker talked about, you know, working with Merle Haggard and Freddie Powers. I mean, there's great examples where uh, Ray Baker was also a song publisher. Um, a lot of these guys were smart and open song publishing houses because they were listening to so many songs. They're also <laughs> businessmen. They might hear a song that's a demo that doesn't quite work for George, but it's like, hey, dude, we love, you know, your songwriting. I mean, they're just smart guys. But other times they were literally driving to work, driving home on lunch, listening to hundreds of uh, Josh talk, Leo talks about his backseat of his car being like a, a, not like a trash bin of cassettes, but a place where he tossed cassettes after he'd pop them in and listen to them. And, and uh, Paul Worley talks about flying from this, because he was a pre record label president too, and James Stroud was. These guys would fly back and forth to whatever, or be on the tour bus, Don Cook with Brooks and Dunn, just listening to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of songs, getting ready for those few that leapt out to their ear that the guys might like. So yeah, it was definitely a thing where uh, they had to, they have to be editors. They have to be shrewd. They have to say no. Um, they have to, if that's sort of what you mean, they have to be the bad mm -hmm. guys. Um, and the other thing is they have to tell an artist when, you know, maybe there's a song the artist brings them that's kind of right, but not quite there yet. Shane McNally talks elaborately about that. Uh, you know, him and Josh Osborne as editors, be it with Sam Hunt, be it with whomever. And the songwriters go for that. The stars that write go for that because they know those people are in that room because they have a track record, A, of, of being critic, constructively critical. And, and a lot of times, not just even critical, but coming up with, with really interesting variations or new additions to those ideas that make the song a hit. 
that it maybe would have been just a top 10. Now it's a number one. So there's an incredible instinct that has to be applied. And it sometimes has to be applied like, nope, that wasn't the take. We got to do another one. So and so. And this is like a superstar going, I don't know. I kind of like that one. He's like, give me another one. You know, let's try, you know, uh, Frank Rogers tells a really funny story about pushing uh, Trace Atkins very gently over a course. Cause that's the other thing. Sometimes producers believe in songs before the artists do. And it's their job to do a psychology campaign where they wear that psychologist hat to wear them down. <laughs> so Trace Atkins told uh, uh, Frank Rogers he wanted to have one of these more kind of, you know, ballad hits. And you're going to miss this is when he just kept saying, I don't know, man, I think it's a great song. But it's not for me, not for me, not for me. He finally had like 20 minutes left on the end of a session and he had to be somewhere to meet his wife and the kids. He said, all right, you get two takes. <laughs> so so those two takes are what he had to work with and that became a song of the year acm song of the year so i mean that's one example of hundreds i could give you there's 300 number ones in the book so you, you have plenty of fertile ground and examples of that though sure and i love the theme of it you know it's behind the board and when it comes to the actual board uh Uncles. you know producing yeah. as a whole <laughs> you know how has that changed over the years and how have producers been able to evolve with you know the new technology new software is it they've kind of to. you know use it or lose it kind of yep yeah they've they've had to um they've had to there's no been no choice in the matter um there are there are people like dave cobb who are ma jedi masters at applying old school recording techniques like recording chris stapleton just in front of a microphone you know versus hmm. a big setup and 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 you know that produced tennessee whiskey and old school approaches where the live side of the recording is concerned, but it, it all goes into the computer. It just does. It all goes into the pro tools or the logic or whatever, you know, those are the two most common. Um, and, and, and yeah, you still have like those beautiful consoles, like the one at Blackbird that Max Crace, the photographer took that photo to make sure I plug him. Um, look, that's a huge board. So that reflects, there's still a lot of what you'd call analog or hands-on turning and, and twisting, you know, faders and dials and dialing and sounds and, and, it, Justin Niebank, another really honor to have in this book, the biggest mixer in country music. Um, he actually also recorded that really awesome, badass 80s after midnight slow version by Eric Clapton that was in that Michelob oh. commercial. And he used to do blues records. I have a book coming up with Willie Dixon's granddaughter, Tamiko Dixon, and the Willie Dixon estate. And they, they're from Chicago. And so we had heard records of his that Coco Taylor and others did. But anyway, it's just really important that anyone who's going to be working in record business today understand two things that we hope this book drives home. You have to be proficient in the digital side of it, but you also have to know how to do the organic live. And a lot of kids that are coming up today don't know how to, you know, mic a live drum set. So what hopefully a book like this does, because it gets nerdy like that a little bit in the right oh. places is it tells you what an RE20 on a kick drum is and why five feet away matters and what room mics do and why under top and bottom side miking a snare drum is important and why DI and live amp for a bass. I'm giving you little examples of why fiddle, how fiddles. And if you want to learn how to do this stuff and you might be in a, a home studio and you might still be recording a fiddle, you can listen to even mic types that are used on dobros or fiddles or pedal steel or some of the different signature instruments to country music it also gives you um hopefully a bit of advice um from these guys about what sort of learning curves they had and then maybe little mistake stories where they had to play catch up 
Um, or guys like Jesse Frazier, who, you know, and, and there's other people who started out as demo producers, Don Cook uh, and others that started out, you know, making demos that were then being in the basis in which number ones were then produced in the studio. I'll give you a really funny example of that, if you'd like. Tony Brown, legendary Tony oh. Brown. We're so honored he was in this book. George Strait's producer. Uh, he talked about it got so competitive because everyone wanted what was called a quote unquote straight cut, like it's called a McGraw cut or a Brian cut. Sure. Now. So they would hire the same players that would play on George Strait's studio sessions to play on the demos. The music That's public. Brilliant. Uh, it was. And then they would listen and George Strait would be like, boy, I really like that. You know, the sound <laughs> later on when they're recording and there's a million songs to give you examples of, they're like, that's because it was us playing. So there was that amount of kind of, um, you know, uh, 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 replication, if you will, of the demo process that then when it became where a guy like a Stefano or a Zach Crow, Joey Moy talks about Florida Georgia line as live as those drums sound. There's hybrids they are programmed and live, but um, he programs all those drums, whereas other guys like Michael Knox take a loop and then they, they mix it in with their live drums and they have their own guy come in and replay the loop and so they can own it. Jody Stevens is a really talented guy. He's Jeff Stevens' son. They, he handles all the electronic kind of program hip hop infusion uh, uh, of Luke Bryan's sound the last few years. Play it again and really cutting edge oh. stuff. Ray Riddle, who's of course started out with, with Smo. A big small country rapper and, and now today produces all over the map. So you've got a lot of examples in the book of that new generation of guys that are the, the cutting edge now. Um, we really are proud of the fact that it covers the entire gamut. Jim Ed Norman's in this book, of course, did Born to Boogie by Hank Williams Jr. And, you know, um, it, hopefully you get a little bit of everybody in this thing, you know? Yeah, those are some great little anecdotes that just, you know, give you a little a little bite of what's in the, in the full book there. Um, just a few questions yet yeah. uh, to wrap this up here. Um, throughout the interviews and writing this book, what is something that you learned um, through these interviews and the writing process, telling these stories? Is there something that you went into it and you were surprised that something uh, was said or just kind of that surprise aspect? Um, probably the number of people who came to town to be one thing and wound up almost by happy accident. Paul Worley was a session player for years uh, before he got behind the boards. Mutt Lang, you know, kind of nudged Dan Huff into it. Just people that started out that would have been perfectly happy as session players, but then by working all, through all those years with so many other producers, they learned without really realizing it how to produce. And then when it was their turn to kind of get behind the board, they were really ready to talk that language and, and keep that fluidity and continuity. And, you know, I mean, if you got to record three songs a session and you're playing two or three sessions a day as a session player, you want to come in with people that are ready to rock. Um, sure. And, and, and I, I just, I guess what I, what I feel like I learned out of that or, or, or um, I knew how that works, but to get the sense of how many of them started out on the other side and then came over to the to the production side and still played on records too and how that underscored the importance for anyone working in the business today or wanting to work you have got to play an instrument it doesn't matter if you think you are the worst guitar player in the world and you only know five or six chords it it will gain you so much more respect from the musicians you're working with and as a communicative tool help you show because so many musicians are not all people playing today are number system people you know, and the old number systems, a lot of them are, are going to need you to show them what you want, or it, it just, it helps immensely as a tool, um, but also really, really learn how to use Pro Tools, and there's YouTube for it, look it up, 
you can sit there and, and, and do practice sessions with your girlfriend or if she sings or whoever, you know, <laughs> aspiring singer or with your cousin who's a country singer and you've got them in the, you know, the, the, the back, you know, kind of room on Friday night, whatever is going to give you a chance. And that was the other thing. Um, get out and record as much as possible was a lesson these guys all said. It, they took any session. Interesting jingle players, however they had to start out in the studio to one day dreaming of then, because some of them came here wanting to be producers, to be fair. There were people who came here on that other end of that spectrum. And they all said though, it was like songwriters, I've got to get out and co-write and do writer's rounds and things. For producers, you've got to be in the studio don't turn down any gig. I'm just thinking of things that they hammered home. Um, but those were some of the highlights. No, that's, that's great to hear. It's kind of, you know, people moving here might have plan A, but there's different forks in the road. And um, as long as you, I mean, the one thing I've learned so far, just being here a year in Nashville is that if you, if you work hard and yeah, you're, you're honest and you're trustworthy and those are good qualities that things will eventually pay out for you, hopefully. Yeah. And that's, um, that's a quickly just that's yeah. another point I would make. It's a community here, and that was another thing the book reinforced that I already from the National Songwriters first two series. There's you know ninety writers between the three. The same thing. There's a, there's a competitive certainly, uh, and and you know, it's two number sure. one charts, but it's a very very supportive place, and and it is a five year town. It might now be even longer. So you don't know what you're where you're going to wind up. But I've been here nineteen years. I love it here. Um, and I recommend anyone that wants to come here, do it now before it gets any bigger and more expensive. But the cost of <laughs> so living true. here and, and, you know, all of it, man. It's, uh, but hard work and, and it's those old-fashioned values that are, like, true to country music. And, and they really yeah. hold up, man. They're, they're as true behind the scenes as they are on, you know, the, in the songs and on the sort of videos and everything else. Sure. So when you finish a book like this, kind of a two-parter, do you allow yourself to – Kind of take a deep breath and no. exhale and just, or you're on to <laughs> nope. the next project and you're figuring out what the next um, couple months look like. Yeah, I write three or four books at a time and I work Man. seven days a week and I have a tolerant wife, um, yeah, thankfully. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, man, I, you know, always be working is my motto. It was above these producers too. Um, if you want to be a working writer and today, especially I'm at 44, I've been doing this since I was 24. So with continued relevance and the only thankful reason I've been able to do that is because I write so much. You have to constantly be like what you'd call a and Ring in the record business, like constantly networking. If you meet people through a book, try to pitch their ear about something if they fit into a series you want to do. Um, and, and upcoming really quick, if I could plug just two or three things. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah there, as an example of this, I just started writing a book with my summer camp that I went to when I was a kid called 40 legends. It's 25 years. They were open. It's a really unique book. We're excited about that. that that's a life dream come true for me with the family and the campers and everybody. They're all in, in it. Uh, but, but upcoming, we have Teddy Riley's memoir, King and New Jack Swing, of course, Bobby Brown, my prerogative, Michael Jackson, all kinds of black, uh, uh, you know, uh, God, no diggity. I'm just thinking he's had so many hits. Uh, and then there's also Beyond the Beats Volume 2, which has drummers from The Police, The Clash, Stuart Copeland uh, from The Police. It's got, you know, everybody's in it. John Lennon's drummer, Iron Maiden's drummer, The Pixies, uh, Santana, 30 drummers and all. Uh, and then, of course, Freddie Powers' uh, memoir, The Spree of 83, which featured Merle Haggard and Willie Nelson and others, is being turned into a movie. 
So the script is done on oh. that. We are currently kind of casting Freddie and there's a new version of that book coming out at Christmas. So between all of those, National Songwriter <laughs> 3 comes out next summer. Uh, I just try to kind of keep it moving, man, because there's always young kids, you know, really smart smarter than me but i mean there's always competition even from kids that say oh i'm a fan of yours they're always looking for your publishing deal sure yeah absolutely I also, i'm also lucky to publish all over the world i've got a great agent in japan literary agents really important part of being a longer term writer um but but multiple countries if you can get your work serialized in other countries it's really it's good for royalty streams and it's good for readership and kind of keeping you sustained in your name sense because as soon as your name becomes irrelevant there's a bunch of people to replace it you know so i, I just sure. try to work with good people and i'm blessed to have them talk to me and we just keep them coming awesome uh, lastly, Jake, where can people find the new book and your other books? Ah, well, um, because of the COVID shutdown, the physical book is hitting stores at some point. We were supposed to be out in June and then Barnes and Noble said, nope, now it's going to be July. And then, cause it was like a two month backlog, you know, oh, uh, I bet, yeah. you can, you can get the ebook. The audio book is two volumes, 30 producers. Um, that's out through Blackstone. Um, volume one's out now. Volume two comes out this next month, this month, later this month. Uh, you can order it on Amazon, but there's, there's ways to get it. Uh, and if you're, if you're an audiobook listener, I just mentioned that because so many country fans I know are not readers. They're more listeners. Uh, and, and those that are, don't have the attention span to sit there for 600 <laughs> pages. You can also go to YouTube and there's a lot of videos like you mentioned that are up so that we try to just, you know, spread the word about it, uh, where you've got multiple formats to read it. My favorite is for people that want to listen along while they read because that's the most interactive experience well this has been great jake i appreciate thank you, you thank you coming on and chatting um i know i listened the other nights i think i went through all the youtube videos that i was able to find on huh, some of these interviews those, 100 of them yeah oh it's <laughs> it's great so i'm excited to check out the book and encourage everyone listening to go find it oh, as well thanks for having so, me on, man. Th thank yeah, you this was this was great um and uh i hope you'll have me back to, for national three Absolutely. Yeah. We look forward to the next books coming out every two or three months as you keep yeah. writing them. <laughs> well, we'll see. Freddie Powers is next. Uh, uh, the Spree of 83, Life and Times of Freddie Powers. It comes out of Christmas. And then the screenplay, we hopefully next year uh, we'll get our funding back and, and <laughs> be able to, you know, find the perfect Freddie. But uh, I'm sure. learning a lot about how that world works and how slow it works too. So it's, uh, yeah. But anyway, I appreciate your time. I'll, I'll look forward to the next time we talk. Sounds great. Thanks again, Jake. Thank you, buddy.